Hey, how are y'all doing today? Good. Well, if you don't know me, my name is Savut, and I teach the third and fourth grade and the middle school kids in the back, and I absolutely love it. Um, it's a pleasure and an honor to be part of the kids' lives. Um, I love watching them worship and learn about our king. Uh, it gives me so much hope for their lives, and that's exactly what this first candle represents. It represents hope. And in your notes here, you have the first part of what I'll be reading. Um, in Isaiah 9, verses 2 through 7, it says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in a land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoiced at harvest time and as they rejoiced when dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. For the trampling boot of battle and the bloody garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, for us a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast, and his prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And I absolutely love this scripture, and I don't have time to share, um, to go over, over all of it, but the first few verses says, the people walking in darkness, that, that was once us. We were once those people who lived in darkness and walked in darkness. But the beautiful thing about this verse is right after it says, but they have seen a great light. And that light is what I want to talk about today. That light and the hope of Jesus is what changes us. Um, we, most of us have seen this great light and had a genuine encounter with Jesus. However, there are is, there is some of us in this room that have never experienced a real encounter with Jesus. And um, if, you, if, if that's you today, I'm so glad you're here. And I hope one day you get to experience what it, what it really feels like to have your life change and uh, the Lord totally changed my life, um, and I want to talk about that real quick. Um, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I grew up in a Buddhist home, and for 18 years, I lived in darkness. I grew up longing to be loved. I longed to be known, and I longed to be heard. I was lost. I was lonely. I was depressed. I was abused. Didn't really have family, and I wanted to give up and quit multiple times. But the hope of Jesus, that's what changed me, and that's what saved me. I saw hope, and I had a genuine encounter with Jesus because people loved me, and people listened to me, and they shined their light on me, and they gave me hope. And I met, as the scripture says, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the eternal father, the father that I've always longed for, and the prince of peace. I wonder if some of you in this room are living in darkness. Are you lonely? Are you struggling with lust and porn and addictions? Are you struggling with your family? Do you have family that will listen to you? Are you struggling with finance, pride, identity? Are you struggling with your marriage? Are you thinking about giving up and quitting? Are these things holding you back from seeing the hope in Jesus? Do you look at this world and say, there's, there's absolutely no way. There's no way I can do this. There's no way I can be free from my addictions. There's no way I can do this alone. 
And if you look at this world the past few years and, and you see all, all these events, I, I, w- I would say there, there's no way, absolutely. But you cannot put your hope in this world. It will fail you. Um, in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16 to 18, it says, Therefore, we do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And Corey pictures it a lot. He says, think eternal. Live for the eternal kingdom and not this worldly kingdom. This is temporary. What, what goes on in this world is temporary. There is no hope in this world. Hope can only be found in Jesus. So focus on this world and, and you see the events and you will lose hope. Romans 15, 13 says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. The church, guys, you people, people in my life, that's what keeps me going after Jesus. Keep being the church and keep being part of providing hope in a broken world. And one day, you'll encounter a lost person in your life who will be eternally grateful. I'm grateful for this family, uh, so don't give up. Keep fighting. It's worth it. There's hope in Jesus. I love you guys. Good morning. Y'all bear with me. This is the last one, and you're the last group that gets to hear my man voice. <laughs> so, and it has held out for four services, and I've done the whole lip-syncing praise and worship <laughs> for the four services. So, um, My name is Debbie Vaughn. My husband, Mike, and I uh, live in a, on a farm in Woodbury where we own and operate a couple of businesses. Mike also teaches here in, Murfrees- in the Murfreesboro City School System. We've been a part of the Experience community for three years. We both serve in uh, hospitality ministry at, at the uh, 7 o'clock worship service on Saturdays and in one-on-one discipleship with others here in our church community. I also serve in the care ministry, and I volunteer to call uh, the adults that are baptized after the baptism weekends. I enjoy being behind the scenes and getting to hear all the stories of how people were led to a faith in Christ or to recommit their lives back to him. And just a quick aside, I got to meet one after the 9 o'clock service this morning, and that was just such a blessing to me. And if that wasp lands on my head, you're going to see me doing some kind of chicken dance. Anyway, um, that allows me to carry out one of my strongest passions, um, helping people get connected to some form of discipleship, either through a life group or one-on-one with a mentor. Um, a, A genuine Christian faith walk is not an easy journey, and God does not mean for us to go it alone. Discipleship is vital to help put you on the right path and give you the tools you need for your journey. Okay, thank you. (laughs) I'm not having a fit if that happens again. (laughs) Why me, Lord? Why me? Look, I'm already dealing with a boot on my (laughs) on my foot and a laryngitis. (laughs) So, okay. (laughs) All right. (laughs) No technical difficulties here. Just flying insects. 
I'm honored that Kyle asked me to share with you today about love. My prayer is that I share God's heart and not just empty words. Scottish evangelist Henry Drummond said, The world is not a playground, it's a schoolroom. Life is not a holiday, but an education. And the one eternal lesson for us all is how better we can love. I think this speaks perfectly to Paul's heart as he wrote from prison to the church at Philippi in Philippians 2, 1 through 11. As I've meditated on several translations of this scripture over the past couple of weeks, I've chosen the message to share today. It's not my usual study translation, but for me, it seemed to best translate the strong love in Paul's heart for the Philippian church, very much like Corey's heart and the heart of all of our leadership as they teach and disciple us throughout the week. Let's look at verses one through four first. If you've gotten anything at all out of following Christ, if his love has made any difference in your life, if being in a community of the Spirit means anything to you, if you have a heart, if you care, then do me a favor. Agree with each other. Love each other. Be deep-spirited friends. Don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet-talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. Does being in a love relationship with Christ and in a community of the Spirit transform you? Does it cause you to strive to agree with others, to love others, to be deep-spirited friends with others? Does it cause you to be vulnerable and allow others to be a deep-spirited friend to you? To speak loving biblical truth into your life? To walk in faith with you through struggles, trials, temptations, and your failures. I have to ask these questions because I've also asked them of myself. Let me assure you, I am not an expert in walking out my faith. I'm just someone with a backstory that may be a bit similar to your own. Parents divorced when I was seven, violent alcoholic stepfathers, experimentation with destructive behaviors and relationships just to feel accepted and loved. I found religion without relationship at 18 and still struggled with the need for love and acceptance. It took years for the light to come on that God wanted a love relationship with me. All my dysfunction, my failed attempts at goodness, my poor decisions, they didn't matter. All it would take to have a relationship with the one who would transform me was one word, yes. Yes, I repent and die to my sin and myself. Yes, I accept your forgiveness, the forgiveness of others, and I forgive myself. And yes, I will follow you anywhere. So back to the original question. Does being in a love relationship with Christ and in a community of the Spirit transform you? Yes, it has to. You cannot have a genuine encounter with Jesus and not begin to be transformed. If there is no transformation that is evidenced by a desire to be more like our precious Savior, allowing him to love others through us, love that looks like Christ's love will not thrive. All we then have is religion, which doesn't come close to resembling his love. And religion grumbles and finds fault and fusses and compares and competes 
and on and on. I know this because I once found religion and it was void of any love. My relationship with my Savior and this community of the Spirit, you people, has transformed my life forever. It takes walking in fellowship with Christ and all of you. Let's look at verses 5 through 8. Think of yourselves the way Christ thought of himself. He had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status, no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave. He became a human. Having become human, he stayed a human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death. And the worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion. Dan Moeller is one of my favorite Bible teachers just because he exudes God's love. In his testimony, he says, I was born into the lie of living for self. And now because of what Christ has done, I can be born again. I die to myself to become love. Our water baptism symbolizes this death to ourselves, not just a makeover or remodel so we look and talk better or more religious, carrying the same ugly on the inside, but we actually allow Christ to live in and through us and toss out the stinking, rotten, ugly stuff. It's how we're actually able to pull off being in agreement with each other, putting others first, being deep-spirited friends, loving each other. Our greatest example is seen in verses 5 through 8. Christ, who had equal status with God, made nothing of himself so he could become equal with us. So I should do the same thing. I should consider myself equal to the homeless, to the drug addict, the murderer, to a liar, a thief, a beggar. I should see myself equal to the person at work who annoys the fool out of me. Just so you know, I have two businesses and none of my employees annoy the fool out of me, okay? (laughs) To the insensitive person who has a full grocery cart in the 20 items in underline. You know that person. (laughs) Equal to the waitress having a bad day or a fellow believer that keeps falling again and again to the same sin problem. Equal to a friend who hurt me deeply. Do you see? When we view ourselves as equal to or less than those we consider difficult to love, that's when love blooms. That's when we can love them, serve them, give to them. Love that looks like Christ's love doesn't place a different price tag on people. He paid the same price for us all. That kind of love is what transforms you, me, and the world. I'll close with verses 9 through 11. Because of that obedience, God lifted him high and honored him far beyond anyone or anything ever so that all created beings in heaven and on earth, even those long ago dead and buried, will bow down in worship before this Jesus Christ and call out in praise that he is the master of all to the glorious honor of God the Father. The season of Advent focuses not only on the expectation of Christ's birth, but also as a reminder that we wait in expectation for his return. Not with our hearts and hands neatly tucked away, 
hoping to be beamed up to heaven, but busy, busy loving people, loving them in Christ and to Christ. Ben Franklin wrote, how many observe Christ's birthday? How few his precepts? May these words not ring true of Christ's church. May we instead reflect these brilliantly simple words by Bob Goff, author of Love Does. Give away love like you're made of the stuff. We're rehearsing to spend eternity together. Thank you. That's hilarious, huh? Save $5 on Elmo, pay $86.50 to get out of jail like 15 minutes later. I don't know about y'all where I'm from. That's bad math, right? That's not a savings. That's a loss right there. So uh, my name is Chris Campbell, and most of you guys know my wife, Lindsay Campbell. I'm usually carrying bags and babies back there, getting a little protection sticker, hoping my kids don't go off the rails and get put up on the screen up here, so I have to go run out and get them. So y'all parents can relate to that. I get it. Hey, listen, I hope this, uh, this fourth service is a lot better than my uh, first one. Had a 18-minute uh, rendition of uh, Freebird, and then uh, me being a glass case of emotion. Not a good mix right there. A little cocktail of problems right there. All right, so let's start out with Matthew 1, 18 through 25. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, and yet did not want to expose her to the public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill the Lord, what the Lord had said to the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded and took Mary home as his wife. He did not consummate the marriage until she had given birth to the son and they gave him the name Jesus. So joy is not easy. Although your uh, treasure is not of this world, unfortunately, your affliction is. And I always look at this. I, guys, I, I experienced uh, anxiety for probably two to three years uh, consecutively. So whenever I see joy, I have to kind of balance that out and pull the tension wire and say, okay, what about anxiety? How does that play part in this? Well, see, anxiety to me is when you review your past and you conveniently forget how God has brought you through something. And then you look into your future and you don't see him there either. And the reason is joy depends upon God and anxiety depends upon you. Sarah Young says this, and I really love it. She says, it's not so much the adverse events that make you anxious as it is your thoughts about those events. Your mind engages in efforts to take control of a situation to bring about the result that you desire. Your thoughts close in on the problem like a ravenous wolf, determined to make things go your way, and you forget that I am is in charge of your life. When David, and I just want to lay this out there, minus him being a king, me and David would have hung out, promise you, because that guy's a psycho. I'm a psycho. He's like, well, up one minute, down the next minute. I mean, I get him. Me and him are kindred spirits. <laughs> Psalms 43, 5, he says, in a depressed state, by the way, why, my soul, are you so downcast? Why are you so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior, my God. See, he keeps coming back to God. He sees him as his fortress and his, and his refuge. The guy that was after God's, the man that God said is after my own heart, had these distressed states. 
But he kept coming back to God. And that's what we have to do as well. James says, consider it a pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. And I'm so glad he put the word many instead of like one or two. Because then we could easily disqualify this to say, doesn't apply to me. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not liking anything. anything. Got a little Jamaican there. Um, anything. So, all right, so let that go by. Something, <laughs> it's over. I need to hang it up. No, I'm kidding. Sometimes our feelings have to catch up to the objective celebration of what is true. John 10.10 says, the thief of this, the thief only comes to kill, steal, and destroy, and I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. So the question is this, how do you foster joy? When John writes, these things I write into you that your joy may be full, he's talking about the previous verses, there's nothing about prosperity in this world, but all about fellowship with Christ, from which you and I can easily infer that everything revealed to us in scriptures has, a, has for its supreme purpose to, to uh, foster our believer's joy, the believer's joy. Joy will turn the what-ifs of life into the even-ifs of life. Joy comes when you're aware of God's grace, the forgiveness of sins, and this is huge, and it can't be missed. You can experience a lifetime of joy from just that thought alone. How short-sighted can we get when we think this world is it? We're so paralyzed sometimes by our, uh, our situations, I know I am, that we can't see that just as easy as we're forgiving, and that even if death were to come, we can still be with him. Jeremiah says in, in Lamentations 3, after waiting through the mental anguish of a Babylonian exile, 21 verses full of it, and then he starts getting his mind right. Yet I call this to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because the Lord's great, his great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, there he is again talking to himself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I'll wait. The Lord is good to those who hope, whose hope is in him and to the one who seeks him probably got a great coffee cup with that on it right it's a lot harder to finish that cup off and go actually do that for the day so to wrap up here in John 15 as the father has loved me this is Jesus talking so I have loved you now remain in my love if you keep my commands you will remain in my love just as I have kept my father's commands and remain in his love I've told you this so that your joy may be in me my joy may be in, in you excuse me and that your joy may be complete so he wants us to focus on his commands because David says this as well. He says in the Psalms, commandments of the Lord are right, bringing joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are clear, giving insight for living. So it's kind of like the shampoo bottle, rinse and repeat. That's a good marketing ploy. They want to sell more shampoo. But this is, this is back to the Bible. So if you want to read and apply, okay, guys, if you want joy in your marriage, you have to read and apply. Go to Ephesians 5 and read and apply. If you want joy in your finances, read the book of Proverbs. You'll get a master in finance. In 31 days. You want joy in your home? Read and apply. Here's the deal, guys. Emmanuel is here as promised. We have a choice to believe or not to believe. Hard times have come and they will come again. But I can promise you this. One day they'll stop because he said so. Christ is our joy. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He is our joy. Y'all have a good morning. Hi. <laughs> um, for those of you who don't know me, I'm uh, Corey Trimble's wife, Alicia, and um, I just want to say I've 
I don't enjoy this, but I have enjoyed, um, I'm, I'm honored though, but it's not, um, I, I have enjoyed though being at all four services. It's just been so beautiful. And Kyle, thank you for putting together such a great service. Um, I mean, we've laughed, we've cried, we've almost been killed by a wasp. <laughs> so it's just been such an honor just to be able to, um, you know, just be, be with all the services and just uh, let you guys know how much we just appreciate you and are just um, just thankful to have this opportunity to speak to you about Christ. My uh, candle is about God's peace. And um, as I was thinking about this, I've been trying to stay off Facebook because that's where I get all my news. I'm attached to like Channel 5 and just, you know, and so I, everything's terrible that they post on there. And um, I got to thinking, you know, especially during this time of year, it's our job as Christ followers just to share like the peace. And I'm like, this world is so dark. Um, but then I reminded myself that God makes greatness from small things, like a baby being born in a lowly manger. The word peace is used a lot during this time of year. And it's on the Christmas cards we send. It's in the songs we sing with Vince Gill while we're driving down the street, while we're losing our temper over the traffic. Um, the word stirs a longing in us, but it seems sometimes peace can be hard to come by. Um, it could just be the small things. You know, if life is going well for you, it's you're stressed out about the meals that need to be planned, the events you have to attend. It's just those little things that still distract you from the focus of this time of year. Or there's you've lost a loved one within the past year, and it's uh, really hard just to focus on finding the, the peace and joy from the Lord because you're, you're grieving. Um, there's people that will say they can't wait for the Christmas season to be over due to the stress. And it made me think back to the first Christmas, thought of Mary and Joseph, and um, how stressful it would be to be an unwed, pregnant teenager during this time. And I thought of how she was probably treated while she walked around her town, or how scared her fiancé probably was. But Mary's initial response when she was told she would conceive was, My soul proclaims the goodness of the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. When it was time for the birth, they had nowhere to go. But God gave them the gift of peace. Even though they were in the midst of a chaotic, stressful situation, they trusted God the entire time and were able to embrace peace. Isaiah 26.30 says, You will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast, because they trust in you. With perfect peace, our focus is not on our problem, but is constantly on Christ. To have this peace, we must be intentional about focusing on God and trusting him. We must remind ourselves that his timing and purposes for our lives are perfect. Taking time to meditate on his word guides and anchors our lives. Psalm 119, 165 says, Great peace have they who love your law, and nothing can make them stumble. Worldly peace only comes from pleasant circumstances when things are going well in our lives. Biblical peace is not related to circumstances. But in the midst of trials, we can still have peace. God's peace is complete, adequate, and sufficient for anything we may face. It's attainable if we draw closer to him. In Psalms, it says, Abundant peace belongs to those who love your instruction. Nothing makes them stumble. The book of Philippians says, Don't worry about anything. The peace of God, which surpasses every thought, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We must trust that God is in control regardless of what happens in our lives. And remember, without great trials, we cannot have great victories. Peace of God is an indicator that we are allowing him to guide us. 
True peace doesn't come from a work or an achievement, but it only comes when man fulfills his purpose for which he was created. We find that purpose by believing and putting our trust in Jesus Christ. When we insist on being in control, we end up choosing fear rather than faith. Fear and worry are the enemies of peace. The Bible tells us to cast our cares upon him. We must let his peace rule our hearts and trust his promises for us. It allows us to be free from anxiety, and then we are able to show a sad world what it looks like to have joy during the trials that we face. We can stay calm during the storms in our life, and that is the greatest testimony we can show to the world around us. God doesn't promise a life without sorrow or pain, but he does promise strength from above and undying love. Psalm 29:11. the Lord blesses his people with strength. The Lord blesses his people with peace. As we learn more about God, we see that he is always faithful and stays true to his promises. We are able to experience his continual goodness. We cannot let situations determine our level of contentment, but instead we must learn to rely on a God that never changes. Paul was a great example of having the peace of God. He tells us to consider it all joy when we encounter various trials. Through his trial of being in jail, he was able to teach salvation to his jailers and the jailer's family. Our enemy, the devil, is persistent in wearing us out and keeping us from God's will. As Christians, though, we must remind ourselves that we are full of the spirit of the living God. We are more than conquerors. We must plan ahead to stay peaceful during trials because everything is not going to go the way that we plan for our lives. The Bible says to not let your hearts be troubled and don't be afraid. Submit and trust him to be as good as his word. Rebellion and sin broke communion with God. Jesus Christ came into this world to bridge the gap and undo the effects of sin. God promised he would send a savior to restore peace. During Advent, we anticipate the return of Jesus when peace will reign for eternity. Until then, we are called to be the peacemakers. The Bible says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Peace on earth starts with us as individuals. It starts with our attitudes towards others. By our words and actions, we either create a culture of peace or a culture of hatred. We must treat others with the same love and respect we desire. When we show peace through our actions, we help prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. And last but not least, we must remember what John 16.33 says. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. How's everybody doing? Good, good. I... uh, (laughs) When that, when that wasp landed on Liz, I was like praying in tongues over there in the side. I was just like, God, <laughs> please don't let that thing sting her. So you're welcome, by the way. So um, <laughs> really, really glad you guys are here. This is, again, like Alicia was saying, we always make a joke that she writes my sermons, and you can see how that's plausible. So uh, she does really, really well, though she hates being up here. But it, it, before you guys leave today, all the speakers um, they don't do it for a living. They, uh, they're all servants here at the church. And um, please make sure you go by and tell them thank you. I think they all did a phenomenal job. And, uh, yeah, they did a wonderful job. 
And uh, since you're the last service of the of the four that we do, I just I just want to tell you because I won't see you again until after Christmas. Just how much we love you guys, and and how there's if a genie were to pop out of a lamp and and tell me that I could do anything in the entire world that I wanted to do, there's nowhere else I'd rather be than with you guys. I love you guys um, so much, and I'm always honored. I get to do this every year, and I get the most famous scripture that's read up here, uh, mostly because of Charlie Brown in 1966, but. Uh, I get to read from Luke chapter 2, and I get to read the birth of Jesus Christ, which is such a great story. So let me, let me read this, and then I'll, I'll do my best to, to break it down a little bit. Um, In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. The first registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town, and Joseph also went up from the town from the Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the family line of David, to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and who was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him snugly in cloth and laid him in a feeding trough, because there was no room for them at the lodging place. In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today a Savior, who is Messiah the Lord, was born for you in the city of David. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in cloth, lying in a feeding trough. And suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly host with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to the people that he favors. If you have a Bible, you don't have to pick it up. You don't have to do this exercise right now, but it's interesting to look at. If you have one of those fancy Bibles with all the commentary and all the maps and all that stuff, those things can be 22 to 2,500 pages. They're huge. They're huge. If you take that, and if you go to the very, very beginning of the entire story, I'm talking way back, back in the book of Genesis, just in the first three chapters, we start to see that God had promised that he would send someone to clean up the mess of humanity. Not a mess that God had made. It wasn't his fault. It wasn't anything that he had done. We had made the mistake. Humanity had. And because of the temptation that Satan proposed to Eve, she fell, Adam fell, humanity in general fell. And so God, from the very beginning, promised that he would send someone to clean it up. Now, it's remarkable when you go back and look at the whole entire story of the Bible starting at Genesis. The first thing is it's remarkable that God would be so gracious to even clean it up. He didn't have to do so. We're the ones that messed up, not him. But in his grace, in his infinite wisdom, he decides that he is going to send a Savior, a Messiah, and we're promised that right from the get-go, right out of the gates, that someone would come. Now, that's remarkable, but if you compound on top of that, what's even more remarkable is we find out who the Savior is going to be, that it is going to be not just uh, any person, not just a prophet, it's going to be the Son of God. And so if you weren't here last Wednesday, I've heard Dave tell this story before, but it's a wonderful story. And if you have kids, you, you can totally sympathize and empathize and relate to this story. There's a story of when his, uh, his, his son, his only son, who's now like 6'9", or however tall Briggs is, he's a big kid, 
But he and Dave would sit there, and, and right when Briggs was just learning how to talk, Dave would do this game where he would go, Briggs, Daddy, Briggs, Daddy, trying to teach him, you know, who was who. And the first time his only son said, Daddy. Right? We all, if you have kids, you, you remember that. The first time your kids say your name and they know who you are. And there's, I mean, you, it's that time when you know that you would, you would do anything to protect and to provide for these kids. And so what God does is he takes his only son and he is willing to sacrifice his only son for the possible salvation of humanity. What I mean by possible is there are going to be people that weren't going to respond to this. There are going to be people that throughout time, throughout the the time we have on earth, that will not respond to the remarkable gift that God has given us, his only child. And so as you build on that, it's remarkable that Christ would send a Savior. We find out it's his son. That's remarkable. And then we find out how he delivered his son. Not wrapped up in gold, not wrapped up, uh, not coming with political power or military strength, but coming as a poor child that was born in a stable and put in the feeding trough that most of the donkeys and whatever animals are out there would eat out of. They would grow up to be a very blue-collar worker, right? Just a normal, kind of average individual that would go on to save humanity. It's remarkable. And then if you even compound more on top of that, in Jesus Christ, we don't just have the Son of God, that Jesus Christ is God. That the little boy that we celebrate that grew up to be a carpenter, who grew up to be the one that died on the cross and shed his blood for our sins, that that wasn't just the Son of God, but it was God. And so we see the complexity of what the Holy Trinity is in Jesus Christ. That he was completely man, but he was also completely God. And that he and the Father are one with the Holy Spirit, that they are all connected. And we see that in Jesus Christ. Savut, who got up here and read earlier, who's a phenomenal teacher and and does a lot, but he read from Isaiah chapter 9, and I'm going to touch on just the last couple of verses. It said, for a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast, and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. In this time of year, I I don't think we just forget what the season should be about. I think sometimes we forget who the season is about. And even if we know it's about Jesus, I think sometimes we forget who Jesus is. But the scripture tells us, and it gives many, many descriptions of of the complexity and the different facets of Jesus Christ. But just in the part that we've read, we hear that Jesus Christ is the counselor who provides wisdom for our emotional needs. In a day and age when people are drowning in fear, when they are drowning in depression and anxiety, in a time that is extremely confusing, because of Jesus Christ, we have clarity. Because of the gift of wisdom that Jesus brings through his Holy Spirit, that we can petition him, we can talk to him, and in these crazy times, he can give us wisdom on how to navigate through the turbulent waters that is the world right now. We find out that Jesus is the father to the fatherless. Now, some people who don't know my story or some of the other stories of the people on this stage and the people that, that serve at this church, 
It's easy to sit back and say, well, you know, how can Corey not know about family dynamics or dysfunction? Just to be transparent with you guys, I have a father that in my 36 years, eight of those we have not spoken at all. And so I can empathize with those of you that don't have a good relationship with your family. I can empathize with that. For those of you that haven't had a mother figure in your life, I'm blessed to have a wonderful mom in my life. But I know that there's many of you that didn't have a good relationship with your mother. And for those of us that didn't have the kind of parents we wished we had, Jesus Christ steps in and he is a dad to the dadless. And he is a nurturer to the momless. That he can come in and he can be those things. He is also the Prince of Peace that comforts us in the times that we're living in right now. Like my wife talked about, if you read the news, if you keep up with it, if you hear about the wars, the rumors of wars, when you hear about the, the immigrants either being denied or accepted and the turbulence that comes with this and all the frustrations that are going on, in the middle of all that, in the middle of this chaos, only through the power of the Holy Spirit, only through the Son, can we have peace and can we have peace of mind? We also find out that he is a righteous and just king. He can not only carry the governments of the world on his back, he is greater than the governments of the world. He can not only carry the weight of politics and economics and, and all the different things that governments uh, entail, but he is greater, and he is the only one that has established a kingdom that will never fall. And finally, Jesus Christ is simply the Savior. Jesus the, is the only hope for a broken and depraved people in this time of year, we celebrate that. I want to encourage you. People tend to lose their minds during this time of the year, either through their materialism or their greed or because of loss and because of things that have happened. They, they lose themselves in sorrow and they lose themselves in regret. I want to encourage you to step back. Don't get sidetracked by the materialism, by frustrations or tensions that this time of the year can bring. And I know that many of you are lonely. I know that many of you are lonely because you come into my office and you tell me. I know that some of you have experienced extreme loss. And I'm so honored that you guys would trust me to, to help you grieve and to share that weight. I wouldn't say names because I don't want to embarrass people, but there's people in this room that I've grown so close to and I love so much that this sounds weird, but it's an honor that you would trust me enough to grieve with you and to help you carry that weight, and I know that you're lonely. There are people in this room that have gone through divorce. There are people in this room who've lost loved ones. There's people in this room that have very little, and let me tell you why the church is so important. God has given us the church. He has given us each other, and we are to look out for each other, and we, to, or we are to edify each other, and we are to bring each other together because whatever the world has stripped from us, the relationships or the people, God has given us the church to fill that void until he comes back. And we need each other. We need each other. I know that some of you are lonely, broken, and longing for hope. But know that the Savior has come. And he comes to bring gifts of hope, joy, and salvation in this life and in the next. Know that the King has come and he will come back again, and he will give a kingdom to his subjects. 
We say the words so often, if we're allowed to anymore, that we forget the meanings of them. We say, Merry Christmas. The word Christmas comes from the two words, Christ's Mass, which means a fellowship, a communion with the Son of God. We say, Merry Christmas, forgetting the words and how big they are and what it's supposed to mean. It doesn't mean gifts under a tree. It doesn't mean you know, discounts at Best Buy. That's not what it means. It means a fellowship of his believers and a fellowship of his believers with him. For those of you who are lonely, from the bottom of my heart, Merry Christmas. For those of you who've lost loved ones, from your church family, Merry Christmas. For those of you that are broken and struggling and hurting and confused, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. The King has come, and He will come back again. The King has come, and He will return for His subjects. You're a citizen of a much greater kingdom than this world can ever offer. You're subjects and citizens of the kingdom of God. And it's a kingdom that no war can ever destroy and no dictator can ever topple. It will never move. And one day we will get to inherit it. Stay strong. Stay strong. Stay strong. Don't let the world take your joy. Don't let the world rob you. God has given you something much greater. He's given us hope. He's given us love. He's given us peace. He has given us joy. And it's all centered around Christ. And without Christ, we cannot have those things. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. You have no idea how much I care for you all. You have no idea. Merry Christmas. I love you so much. And if I love you like this, your Father in heaven loves you in a way that you can't even understand. Now, we do it every single week, and I think we forget the, the significance of this too. We have communion on the right and left. This not only symbolizes the fact that the Son has come, it symbolizes the fact that the Son grew up, and when he was 33 years old, he was violently killed for you and I. But he did, it doesn't end there. He wasn't a martyr. That he rose again. And his Holy Spirit was poured out so we can have an intimate relationship with God the Father. The only thing that stops people from taking communion is, is just simple repentance, asking God to forgive you. Now, we're in no rush. It's 1227. We have time. When you come up, if you take communion today, I encourage you, take it with your family. Now, look. That doesn't necessarily mean your wife and kids. Everyone in this room, the liberal, the conservative, the Democrat, the Republican, the black, the white, we're family. We're family. So don't let anyone take communion alone today. If you see someone by themselves, put an arm around them. Take communion with them. Commune with each other. Christ's Mass. Christmas. That's what we're celebrating, okay? If you'd bow your heads with me. Father in heaven, in your infinite wisdom, God, you already wrote the story, and Lord, we so graciously are invited to be a part of your story. God, as we celebrate your son, as we celebrate his miraculous life, as we celebrate 
the things you've done for us, God. Lord, just let, let, us, let us put things in perspective. God, for the lonely, the brokenhearted, the hurt, I pray, Lord, that your peace that passes all understanding fill them up in this season, God. Give us hope. Give us love. Give us joy. Give us peace. And give us a revelation of who you are. We love you, God, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, you guys are welcome to help yourself to communion. Thank you so much. Merry Christmas, guys.